Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Hi, everybody. This is Sarah from the left, and we are bringing you the recording of our live show in Nashville from August 15th. We want to send a big thank you out again to Red Pepper for having us in their amazing space, as long as the as well as the event sponsors, Jackalope Brewery, Bravazzi, and 12th Table. They made the event so special, and we really can't thank everyone enough. This is the discussion portion of the podcast, like just sort of like at the regular show we recorded there. There was also a pretty substantial Q&A afterwards that we are making available to our patrons only. So go on over to patreon.com forward slash pantsuit politics and become a subscriber and you'll get all kinds of additional available content as well as the Q&A from our live show. So again, thanks everybody and enjoy. Places, everyone. Am I on? What is our? Hello. Good evening. Come on up. You're not too late. <laughs> We're getting started right on time. How's everybody doing? Yay! This is so awesome. Welcome to Red Pepper. Um, my name is Tamara Anderson. I work here as our marketing director um, with a fabulous team that has pulled together this event as a part of uh, Red Pepper's Hustle and Grow series. Um, so for those of you that don't know Red Pepper, uh, we're a creative agency. Um, we've built a space um, where we hope to bring people together um, to inspire each other, to learn new things, to unlearn old things, to grow our minds. It's definitely the philosophy we take uh, as we approach the business for our clients on the agency side. Um, and then as a space, um, we hope to be able to do the same, to bring people together, to learn and grow from each other. Um, so the Hustle and Grow series um, has a fabulous vision behind it. Um, 
the wonderful Allie Lanahan has pulled this whole thing together. Give her a great round of applause um, with help from Elizabeth and Alyssa. Um, they have a wonderful vision for this event series. This is the second in the series, um, and this is the Pantsuit Politics uh, live recording. So uh, very exciting stuff. Um, so yeah, uh, first of all, before I dive into what Pantsuit Politics is, for those of you that don't know, but I have a feeling most of you do know, uh, <laughs> we have some wonderful sponsors that have helped pull up this event as well. Um, uh, we've got Bravazzi, Italian Hard Sodas in the back, met Amy and her team back there, if you haven't had a chance to try those. First of all, it's just fun to say, Bravazzi. Um, yeah. Second of all, they're delicious uh, and refreshing, as well as Jackalope Brewery, and then 12th Table um, has provided the wonderful rentals. These are all local female-owned businesses that have such a great alignment with um, what we're talking about and, and doing today. So we were so wonderful to, or so wonderful to get to partner with them. Um, we're really excited about that. Um, so yeah, this brings us to the introductions. We've got Sarah uh, Stuart Holland and Beth Silvers here today to talk about um, some wonderful things about how as women we can get more engaged in the political conversation, be more open about that, um, and just learn from each other and learn how to get more involved. Um, so we're really excited to have you all here today. It certainly aligns with our growth goals as an agency. We're always looking for ways to expand our minds and learn from each other. Um, and it's such a wonderful thing that you, what you guys do to come together and to be able to build such a following, 50 million. Uh, subscribers or 50,000 subscribers, which we're getting to 50 I million. Wish. That would be great. Right you know something corner. I don't know. We'll be there before you know it. 50,000 subscribers, <laughs> which is nothing to sneeze at, as well as over a million downloads. Uh, these fabulous ladies are doing their first live recording of their podcast here today, and we're so honored to have them. So thank you all very much, and I'll let you take it away. So before we start the show, uh, thank you so much for having us. Red Pepper and Allie has been amazing to work with. We're so excited to be here. We definitely want to hear, you know, if you want to applaud every time I talk, that's fine. That would be great. That's cool. But we want to hear the audience interaction, so don't feel like you have to, like, be super quiet because we're recording or anything like that. Um, anything, anything else to add? Uh, we would love for you to tweet um, or post on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. Um, a lot of you are pretty involved in our social media community and know that there are quite a few people who wish they were here and aren't, and I think the more we can and keep them engaged they would appreciate that and we would too so thanks for that please be sure to give shout outs to red pepper they have been awesome hosts we just had a wonderful workshop thanks to those of you who are spending your third hour with us now and uh, <laughs> and do just a, you know we're going to do a question and answer period at the end so be ready for that because it would be really sad if we got there and everyone was like oh we're done so should I do the like? Are you pressing record on call recorder? I feel like we need all our. Oh uh, yeah, like we should do our count on. Like yeah, yeah, we clap and we sync, but we won't do that here. Yeah. Are right, you ready? <laughs> yeah. All right, live from Red Pepper in Nashville, Tennessee. We are talking about the need and desire for more women to be in politics. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. So we are in Nashville. We are excited to be here. We just did a, a three-hour workshop. Beth, at the end of our workshop, I wanted to let you know that Donald Trump said some things. Sarah pulls out her phone. <laughs> So we've, we've been talking for two hours, and I feel like, okay, we're going to have this really good space to, like, get a drink, go to the bathroom, meet some people. And Sarah's like, look at what he said. I was like, my phone, my, my watch was about to blow up. He spoke. He said some things. And he said, can I just go to the bathroom, and then we'll talk about this. <laughs> I wish I'd taken a picture of you reading his remarks. It was uh, not a great face. So what we normally do on our Friday episodes, for those of you who don't regularly listen, is do a little bit of news because too much happens between Tuesday and Tuesday for us to wait to get back into the news. So we're going to do that now, a little bit of news, and then we'll talk about our main subject, which is the role of women in politics, which is one of our favorite things. And the little bit of news, as it often is these days, is Donald Trump said some things. <laughs> So, um, so, so you go ahead, you go ahead. So apparently, and we're getting, you know, the rapid news version of this, the president followed up on his remarks on the events that took place in Charlottesville and continued down the path, pretty far down the path, of creating a sense of equivalence between the violence that took place um, on the part of white supremacists in Charlottesville and the people who were there to counter their message. And we released an episode this morning where we pretty firmly came down on the side of, like, I don't want to hear that from you. I'm not here to have the conversation. You know, we talk about our promise is nuance, but nuance does not mean giving equal credence to all positions on every issue. And this is one where we don't make space 
for the other side. Like, to me, if you are with literal Nazis... No nuance for Nazis. No nuance for Nazis. One of our listeners sent us that. Hashtag no nuance for Nazis. It's easy. It's easy to remember. One of our listeners tweeted that to us. I was like, cross-stitchable, you know, (laughs) every day of the week, Uh repostable, retweetable, do all the things with no nuance for Nazis. So that's where we are. We did immediately, after releasing our episode this morning, get a message on our Facebook page that was like, what about the anti-fascists? And they're actually the people who showed up with weapons and I rarely do this but I was just immediately like we're not responding to this I'm not here for this conversation Mm -hmm. and the fact that our president is makes me sick yeah and I think it's I just realized like the, the the timeline for that so between when we recorded on Sunday night and we were like this is unacceptable you need to be more firm in your position he did that and then by Tuesday was way back on the other side of where we are. That is a quick turnaround. It makes, as we often say when we discuss the president, he is who he is, and he is showing who he is again. Like this, he was defensive. The reporters were questioning him. He didn't like it, and so he felt like he needed to defend himself, and so he came down all the way on the other end of the spectrum of a completely untenable and ridiculous position. I really liked what Seth uh, Meyer said. He was like, pencils down with Saturday. Like, you don't get bonus points, and you certainly have just now any split like smidgen of a bonus point you got you just erased by coming out and saying that not everybody there was a white supremacist i'm what like no it's so i mean again we say this too how he can still shock us i don't know is a testament to hope i don't know what it is but (laughs) there's been a lot of conversation on social media in the past 24 to 48 hours about firing Steve Bannon because I think events like this you do always have this sense of well something needs to be done somebody needs to go down for this some affirmative statement to the world needs to be made and while I wholeheartedly agree that Steve Bannon should be fired because Steve Bannon never should have been in the White House in the first place and I definitely called both my senators and my congressional representative and said so um that's not going to change this president. This president walked out on his own and ad-libbed these comments. So, yes, please fire Steve Bannon. But don't do that and try to say something with it that is not in your heart and that you keep showing us is not in your heart. I mean, if Steve Bannon isn't in the White House, Donald Trump still will be. I mean, that's the reality, right? And the the motivation, and we talked about this on Tuesday, is this about do I think that Donald Trump is a white supremacist? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And we talked about this on Tuesday. I don't know the answer to that question. But, you know, in moments like this, it is so important that the president be presidential and lead all Americans and come down hard on draw the moral line in the sand, have no nuance for Nazis like and that. And that's just lacking. And it's almost like you feel the absence so profoundly when we need it the most. We need the absence of that moral leadership. I think it maybe it was Seth Myers that used the word scolding. I'm like, yeah, we need some like just good old fashioned. I'm the president. Get it together. Scolding like somebody call Martin Sheen. I don't know. But like we <laughs> we need some of that. And you don't get a do over on that. Right. There's a limited moment in time for that kind of conversation, and the president missed that window. And I think some of his reaction is probably to congressional leaders who have Mm -hmm. parted ways with him on this. I think he doesn't like Cory Gardner being out there calling him out and Marco Rubio. And this president has decided that he doesn't need any friends. He just needs the the most hardcore enemies possible. And so anytime he's backed into a corner, he does this. Mitch McConnell is the current enemy. You know, H.R. McMaster is is occupying that role for some in the White House. Uh, The media is a constant refrain him. I mean, he immediately, the, the tweet, I hate to talk about his tweets, <laughs> but the tweet where he said, I said more about Charlottesville and realized the fake news is never satisfied. Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> it's the most whiny baby approach whiny. to all of this. And it, it just is the opposite of leadership. And we're not going to get that from him. So what do we do? Which brings me to, I wondered, Sarah, what your reaction is to the uh, crowd in Durham that pulled down a Confederate monument and and what is the path forward on those monuments, which are going to be flashpoints because whatever else happened in Charlottesville, it energized the white supremacist space. They got a ton of oxygen from that, right? And so uh, they're going to keep doing the that. other side. Too. And it did. That's right. So um, this is a complicated space for me. Um, just today, there's now petitions in my hometown to take down many of the Confederate um, memorials around Paducah. Um, When I watched that video of them taking down the monument, I had a 
complicated reaction. I think that, you know, there is a part of me that sort of pulls away from any such a visceral, angry, like they were kicking it and stomping it. And there was just, you just felt the anger and the emotion in that moment. And there was a part of me that was like, and then like my husband and I were watching it. And when they started cooking, he was like, well, that's not a great look. <laughs> and like, you just kind of felt the, mm. but at the same time, and I told Beth this, like North Carolina has a law that prohibits localities from taking down those monuments. That is literally the only choice the citizens of Durham have is to pull them down themselves. And so there's another part of me that's like, you know what? Go for it. You know what? Like, if you don't have any other options available to you as a citizen, there's a big part of me, which is weird because I'm an elected official, that's like, if you don't like the rule, mm, I mean, not when people's safeties are, safety is at risk. But so I, I'm not going to say that I had one strong reaction, that I had a little bit of both. Um, how I feel about this discussion, and you said, are we going to have to talk about monuments? Yes, I guess we're just going to have to talk about monuments. Um, how I feel about Confederate monuments overall is I have Confederate ancestors. I have ancestors who suffered in prisoner of war camps. I have ancestors who own slaves. And so the first part of me is very resentful of the idea that these groups who demand respect for their ancestry speak for everyone with that ancestry. And they most certainly do not. They do not speak for me. I have a great amount of respect for my ancestry and for my history. If you've ever met me more than 20 minutes, you will know that I'm an eighth generation Kentuckian because I tell everybody it's on my Twitter profile. I'm very proud of that like that I have a strong connection to the history of my um, state and of my town and of the people who came before me I don't think one of my favorite things um, that I read was the article in the Atlantic where he said we don't give monuments to the men of their time we give monuments to men above their time and for better or for worse, I can respect the people that came before me and acknowledge that they made bad choices and did not rise above that's just the reality. And I would expect the same from the people that come after me. If I messed up, say so. Don't turn me into something I wasn't. And so I don't, I think, you know, I think that we are having a very interesting historical conversation. And I feel that, and I think um, a lot of this credit goes to Mayor Landrew in uh, New Orleans, who pushed the conversation past the Confederacy into the idea of the lost cause. And that, that's really what we're talking about. Those monuments did not go up during the Civil War or even really following the Civil War. They went up at the beginning of Jim Crow as a systematic way to intimidate people. And so that's also why I don't feel any obligation to my ancestors that served in the Civil War because I don't really think it was about them. I think it was about intimidating black people in the South and other parts of the country by reminding them that this war that went down and this, and like I said, the lost cause. And so I think that conversation is interesting. I'm glad it's moving into that space. Um, you know, do I think it will stay an elevated, com stay? It's not even elevated conversation now. I mean, it's, it's just so much emotion tied up in it. It's going to be a very difficult conversation to have as a country. But Beth and I had an interview earlier today and I, I was talking about Sheryl Sandberg on talking about the process of grieving. And she was saying, you need to lean into the suck. And I just think as Americans, we're going to need to lean into the suck a little bit on this. Like we are going to have to just lean in to the painful discussions we are going to have to have and the painful emotions we are going to have to feel as white people, as Southerners, as all kind, as Americans. Like we're just going to have to lean into the suck a little bit. So I think a lot of people on the conservative end of this would point to history as a guide. And the truth is, if you're pointing to history as a guide, you're doing so a little bit disingenuously, in my opinion, about Confederate monuments. Because we are a baby country. Like, this is not Europe where we have monuments erected to kings who did terrible things centuries ago. There is a rawness and a freshness to this in our country that we have to be honest about. And until we're honest about that, we won't understand how they impact other people. And we do share this space altogether. We are still in the formative moments of our democracy. And I think we have to be honest about that. The other thing I would say is, if you're conservative, I mean, part of the reason that I always talk about when we talk about why do we identify as we do... For me, the process is really important. I believe in protecting the structure of democracy. How on earth is it conservative to celebrate people 
who tried to leave and, and take down that democracy. Like, it's not a conservative position to celebrate people who were against the government that you say that you love and you're trying to protect. And it drives me crazy. We're just, the, the right is on the wrong side of this issue. And they're, and they're on it for the wrong reasons, and they're on it just out of a reflex. Mm-hmm. And it, it's making me insane. And I need them to stop. <laughs> and we're done. And seen on the monuments. And seen on the monuments. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, you ready to move into something much more positive? I definitely am. All right, let's talk about women in politics. So I think the first question, to avoid having a conversation that's been had 7,000 times on this topic, is what do we really mean when we say we need more women in politics? Do we mean that we need people who are biologically women in politics? Do we mean that we need the characteristics of leadership that we might most typically associate with feminine identity? Or do we mean, I don't like what's happening and I want something to fix it and I think maybe getting women at the table will do that? Or is it some combination of those things? Can we just say all of them? Yeah, D, all of the above. D, all of the above. Um, I think that um, it's, it's... As a feminist and a women's studies minor, there is a part of me that uh, sort of bristles a little bit at this conversation because you can creep into 
women as caretakers, women as the delicate sex, women as the more moral sex, women as, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens there that I'm not really into, and I don't want to do that. Um, but I think there's also, I think you can, can safely navigate the idea that women bring something to the table. For better or for worse, we don't have to solve why they bring that to the table, if it's genetic or if it's our brains or whatever. We bring something different to the table. Um, I think that there is always something powerful when people come to the political table that are in a position of sort of defense instead of offense. And I think you see that a lot with minority candidates and female candidates because for better or for worse, they've been told they shouldn't have to be, they should not be there. And so when you come from a position of the world is telling me I should not be there, you just have a different outlook and you just have a different approach in my experience and watching other candidates and um, living in D.C. for a while. And so I think the more people um, that we have at the table that have that sort of experience of being told uh, you're not welcome here, for lack of a better message, um, the better the politics becomes because it becomes Um, the perspective is just very different. The perspective is different when you come from a place of having to prove um, your ability to be there. I struggle a little bit with the question of whether just more women is an admirable goal. There have been a number of contexts in my life in which I've been asked to support a woman for some position, and I believed that this particular person was not the right person for this position, and I've supported the person anyway because I believed we need more women in those positions. That has never had great outcomes. Are you talking about Sarah Palin? I'm not talking about Sarah Palin. <laughs> Good old Sarah no, Palin. Sarah! Exclamation point! Let's put her in the parking lot and not <laughs> chat about her in this podcast. Um, so that's never had great outcomes. But I think the answer to that is not, I shouldn't have supported those women. I think there is so much inordinate pressure on every woman who enters the table. You know, every person who's been told you're not supposed to be at the table, when they get to the table, the stakes are way too high. And there's an element that's just a numbers game then. Like, every woman who comes to the table is not going to be the perfect woman at the table, just like most of the men at the table aren't the perfect men at that table. But they're there in large enough numbers that one of them who's extraordinary can be deemed extraordinary, and one who's lousy might be called out for being lousy. That should happen more often than it does. But, so I do think there is merit to just, we need more women so that we can fairly then assess those women. Yeah. Because right now they're not being fairly assessed. Right. And you get the, um, the effect that Malcolm Gladwell talked about in his podcast. What do you call it? The, the back door, the slam door, the, anybody? No revisionist history fans in the house. Well, he just talked about, you have this, you have the first person kind of come through and then it's just a slam door because everybody's like, oh, well, that didn't work out. It, moral licensure. Moral he talks about that, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's what happens, too. You have a, I mean, I like to tell myself that we're not going to have to have a conversation about female presidential nominees because Hillary Clinton's presidential nomination didn't work out. Um, but I'm not sure that won't be the case. So, I mean, you get that, like, somebody comes through the door and, like you said, they're being judged on the behalf of all women as opposed to just on their own. Um, value. So what do you see when we think about the women who are in office today? We've talked a lot about Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, um, who are my spirit animals. I love you, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Um, They have more recently, I think they've kind of done the phenomenon of once you stand up and say no, it gets easier to do that. And I hope that that's true. My regret about those two, I still am harboring a lot of feelings about the Merrick Garland situation. Oh, yeah, me too. Because I believe it is the antithesis of conservatism to just say, oh, we don't like this, we're not going to do it. I mean, it's process. The president's entitled to do this. The Senate's supposed to listen and confirm or not confirm. They They should do that. So I'm really frustrated about that. I'm frustrated that these two senators didn't take this stand then. But I'm trying to move on from that and say, but they are on health care, and that's really important, and hopefully they will on the next thing and the next thing they did on Betsy DeVos, right? They're starting to use their voices, and I think they will more and more. I wonder what impact that has on you, Sarah, as a woman in elected office, or what impact you think that'll have on all the women who are starting to express interest in running? 
Um, the impact of just seeing them stand up and yeah. be the forceful vote. And um, just saying no, even though my party says this, no. I'm going to listen to my constituents instead of my fundraisers. There is not a fiber in my being that's surprised that the women leading the the people leading the way and saying, hell no, I won't go, are females. I'll just be honest about that. Like, and, and watching the way, the sort of the dynamics of the parties themselves. And I think this could also be true in the Democratic Party. Um, Again, when you are in a position of defense, I think that that position comes easier to you. The position of being like, well, you know what? I can't win for losing, so I might as well take a stand. You know, and I think that um, you see that. And I also think you have an interest. I would give anything to know the conversations that happen, not just between Murkowski and Collins, um, but Murkowski and Collins and the Democratic female senators. Like, I think the Female Senators Club is, like, probably the best club. Um, I can't fathom the stories they tell. Um, Gillibrand's, like, really comfortable dropping the F-bomb these days, which I think would, like, an added extra. I, I am sad that um, the senator from Maryland, who I can't remember her name right now, but she's about this tall. She's who? Mikulski. She retired, and I bet she was super fun at those parties. But, um, I mean, I think that there's, like, a sisterhood there in which they you felt that with Collins and Murkowski, and I think um, – in my small amount of experience an elected official um, in the city commission, which is majority female, we get that. We get that with each other. And so there's a little bit, I think there's a part of that that you see coming through in their positions um, that would happen more. I mean, or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we would reach a um, sort of a zenith at which point we'd get enough women and then they wouldn't feel like they needed to band together. They could just do what the hell they wanted and not worry about what's the sisterhood say or who's supporting me or who's not. That'd be great too. Yeah, I think a lot about what it would be like if the majority of our races had two female candidates opposing one another. Now, there's a part of me that thinks about that with a sense of dread because of all (laughs) the ink that would be spilled on what female competition looks like. Well, we've had a couple Senate races like cuz when Meg Whitman ran against um Carly Fiorina is that right? No, no, no. Meg Whitman wrote it one wrote, wrote a um excuse me. Ran, this is the part where we be like Nicholas take Nicholas, this out. Nicholas take this out. <laughs> Got that? Uh, Meg Whitman ran against it was either um Barbara or gosh I'm blanking on all their names. It was a female there were two females. Boxer was it Boxer? Boxer. It was Boxer ran, ran against Meg Whitman and I, I I didn't feel like I think there was some of that. Of course, California is always an island to itself, so you can't really plow the rules that go in California anywhere else in the world. But, I mean, I think that was an interesting sort of interaction to see what happened there. But, again, I, I think there was also a lot of ink spilled against about the ladies. Yeah, there have been a couple of prominent articles in The Atlantic lately about women on women violence at work. And I'm just like, can you stop? Because there's nothing unique about this. Men do this to each other, too. Just don't. Like, can we not do this and act like we're a different species? <laughs> um, yeah. No, they're not going to stop doing that. But something I wanted just to comment on that you said earlier, um, I think that that position of I have, in some ways, no wins, so I also have nothing to lose, um, is a trait that appears in a lot of different contexts. I read this article. I work in a law firm, and I read this fantastic article about how Law firms think they have this terrible problem with retaining women. And what they actually have is the failure to recognize that women just make more rational decisions about Mm. their careers than men do. And so it's not that women are leaving at irrational rates. It's that men stay at irrational Mm, rates. That's interesting. And I think that that's happened a lot in politics, too, right? Women just tend to make these. and, And so I think that that could lead to. You know, if I don't win my next election, fine. What am I here for in the first place? I think we need more people willing to commit political suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, and the pundits say that. And I also think as as voters, so when we think about what can we do to influence this, if you're not sitting here feeling inspired to go be on the ballot somewhere, that's okay. But, But supporting people who will make those risky decisions, super important. Yeah, absolutely. And to sort of pivot into talking about why women run beyond just the women we have right now. I was listening to an interview with a um, political director of Emerge America. Emerge is a training program for Democratic women considering public office that I went through. It's an amazing program. And I have articulated this, but because, you know, 
I'm a universe of one, and so a lot of things revolve around me. I thought this was just sort of my personal experience, and then I was like, oh, this is like why people like Emerge generally. I went through Emerge with a friend of mine who is now the mayor of my town. So we went through the campaign together. We won together. We are now in the commission together, and it was an incredibly empowering experience to be with her, to know she had my back, to know I could bounce things off her, that she knew what I was going through. And it, I, I can't fathom how lonely that experience would have been without her. And they were talking about that's the appeal of Emerge General. It's not just the training. It's that you have this network and that women really want to be in it together. Like we want to feel like we can ask there's somebody that understands what we're going through and that we can bounce things off of and that there is this sort of communal experience of going through something that's very, very difficult. And I think, and I hope, you know, Emerge saw like, a, you know, their applications took off by like 80%. And so I, I hope as more women um, sort of get involved in politics and run and they see a friend that like they know a friend who ran and maybe it didn't turn out, maybe it did, but they can ask her about it. And it doesn't feel like this, you know, Ulysses solo journey through the wilderness by yourself. You know, like you have some support. You have women you know who've gone through it. I was telling Beth that, I was listening to this, and I thought, and they were talking about how you need to ask a woman seven times, and if she's a woman of color, double that in order for them to just plant the seed that, sh that she should run for office. And I said, I hope one day, when I'm like maybe 50 or 60, hopefully it won't take till I'm 80, that I will ask a woman to run for office, and she will not look at me like I've asked if she believes in UFOs, because that is my current experience. I say, you should run for office. What? Like, I've asked her to dye her hair purple and walk around naked. Like, it's just, it's so out of the realm of possibility for a lot of women to, people, women who love politics, women who are involved in politics, and you say it, and they're like, what? But I, I hope that we reach this point where it doesn't seem like someone is asking you to do something insane especially at the local level. Because what I did, you know, the mayor was on the podcast um, with me last week, and we sort of joke, like, people are like, are you so overwhelmed? And we're like, no, not really. Not really. No, I'm not overwhelmed. Like, I knew what I was getting into. Yes, is it a lot of work? But am I just dying being a Paducah City Commissioner part-time? No, I'm not. <laughs> like, with love. I'm just not. I love my town. I work very hard on its behalf. But I also have three kids and a podcast, and it's fine. I mean, like, I got a puppy. Clearly, I'm not that overwhelmed. I am now, and I'm very tired. But, um, you know, like, I just think that it's also sort of breaking this idea that it is this mountain impossible to climb, and it'll ruin your life. And we talk about politicians and politics like they are dogs and like it is hell on earth. And why would anybody do Our governor stood up, I saw him, and he was like, I only want to do this for long. If anybody wants to do this forever, they're sick in the head. I'm like not talk about it like that like who's going to want to run what so I say when people I can feel people want me to complain about the job and I'm like no I'm living my best life I love it I love this I knew what I was getting into I love running I love leading I love it and I want it to see it's sort of like this see a positive side to it so people see that it is doable it is achievable and it is empowering and it is a positive experience I mean, there's data on this that women have outsized fears. Women have outsized fears about the ability to raise money. You know, women have outsized fear about uh, conflict and controversy and the amount of kind of trolling that they're going to get. And that's something that I thought we should spend a minute on, Sarah. Like technology, I think, has enabled women to get into the arena in a brand new way. Literally no one was going to find the two of us sitting in Kentucky and be like, y'all should talk about politics and share that with people. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to do that. And so having the ability to, on our own, say, we're going to produce this thing and put it into the world and anyone who wants to listen to it can, uh, that's incredible. Like there are times, because we usually record this in my closet, which is why I'm kind of looking around, because usually I'm talking to like my clothes, <laughs> my shoes. Um, but, you know, sometimes we sit in my closet and I think like, I got an email from somebody in Australia this morning about welfare. That's amazing. So there are so many new avenues to put your voice out there as a woman. You don't have to wait for the party boss or someone in the boys club to come find you and say, let's do this. The other side of that is that your voice gets heard by whomever chooses to listen, and often that's a person who's choosing to listen for the express purpose of criticism. So many new and exciting ways for people to harass you. <laughs> so let's talk about that a little bit and your experience of that and uh, the experiences that we know of other women having and kind of how we personally deal with that. 
Um, so I think that the double bind that women who exercise their voice in any avenue, but especially politics, find is that if you are um, not, if you are capable, you are a bitch. And if you are nice, you are not capable, which doesn't lead to a lot of great options. So um, it's really, I think the hardest part for me is I really, really, really wish that it was just trolls on the internet who felt that way about women, but it's not. And I really, really wish in a way it was only men that felt that way about women, but it's not. And so it's one thing to be able to take a troll and put him in a box and be like, eh, forget the troll. Like who cares? Um, they're going to say that crap about Democrats or progressive or women, but it's really hard when you bump up against opinions from people you love and respect. And you're like, come on, I know you don't feel that way. Do you feel that way? Like, it's, it's not easy, and I can only fathom seeing, seeing what I've encountered. Um, and sort of my whole life, look, I didn't start being like this at 35. Like, I've been this way my whole life. I've had red hair my whole life. I've had a loud mouth my whole life. And, you know, Beth and I, we were like a yin and a yang, and she always talks about how she was the beige wallpaper, and I couldn't be beige wallpaper if I wanted to. I really wanted to. At a certain point, I was like, I'm going to be the nice, quiet girl. It's going to be great. And it lasted like five and a half minutes. So um, I think that with, for women, you know, every time you kind of, let's, let's, I'm not going to be quiet. I'm not always going to be nice. Um, you're going to get pushed back and it's not always going to be from places you expect it to come. And, um, so that is hard and it's hard on a small, you know, local level. I cannot fathom, um, what someone on the level of help say Hillary Clinton does. I worked with Hillary Clinton. I watched her up close. She is, you know, completely amazing and the, the the her voice in my head that I try to listen to a lot is take criticism um wait I'm gonna get it wrong seriously but not personally take it seriously but not personally um and that includes from people you love and respect sometimes you got to take it seriously but not personally because at the end of the day if you your actions align with your values and you're moving forward in a way that you know makes your trips around the sun worth it then that's what you got to live with. And I think that's sort of the piece that every woman in the public eye has to make. Um, I really, even though um, I am a outspoken person and I'm sort of comfortable in confrontation, I'm a high eye. We were talking about somebody with a disc assessment. If anybody knows what the disc assessment is, I'm like 99 out of 100. I really like harmony. And so when I feel like that, that maybe not an anonymous troll, but somebody that knows me or should know me is unhappy with me, it feels like my skin's on fire. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me prove to you that I am really doing my best here and my intentions are good and I'm a good girl and a nice girl and you should be friends with me. And I, I feel that drive and I just have to let it go sometimes. Some, you know, I never forget in eighth grade, my friend used to tell me all the time, a queen with no enemies is no queen. So that's what I tell myself. <laughs> in my, sometimes, sometimes I'm full Hillary Clinton and sometimes I got to have my eighth grade best friend going, a queen with no enemies is no queen. And if everybody likes you, you're probably doing something wrong. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin. I take a probiotic. And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. 
their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. I've never heard you say that before. I thought I had heard like all of those bits of wisdom, but no, that's a new one for me. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Um, you know, it's funny because you, I think that the way we feel about some of these things is, um, it runs contrary to like what your instinct would be about us because I was an RA in college. Like, I don't care what people think of me. You can't be an RA in college if you care what people think about you. You can't do it. Um, it's miserable, and, and your life doesn't work if you invest too much in that. So I very... My favorite thing you do for that is the um, being the working mom and feeling the guilt about daycare. And you just have, like, a light switch. You're just like, no, mm-mm. No, I don't do mom guilt. Yeah, I just I choose not to. It's amazing. It's, a, it's like a superpower. Because what is the point of that, you know? And so when we get... See, 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 see how she just did that there? She's like, what's the point? Moving on. No, I don't do mom guilt. Um, And I don't do troll guilt either. So when we talk about trolling of our show, I I get more than Sarah does. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is because my, my working theory is that a woman who identifies as conservative and is not on the Trump train, as it were, is the most offensive thing that's ever existed to people who are. And so that's where I find myself. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that for better or for worse, women, and I will say, I will be very specific and say, in the conservative media space, right, are um, a very specific and narrow type of Well, I think viewpoint. that they're just like a totem. They're not, they're just a placeholder. I don't think they, they're, be, they're seen as full and compute, complete human beings with the right to their own opinion. I'm just going to be honest about that. And I am not going to be a placeholder. So mm-hmm. I get these emails from people who listen to every single episode that we release the moment it is released only to email me about how horrible it was, <laughs> how stupid I am, and how wrong I am. I really don't get those. I, I don't get those kind of emails. And I don't care at all. I mean, I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think when I look at – so when I think about women entering the political arena – Um, I think we need more people who don't care at all, you know, who want to listen to their constituents and care about the principles that they they, they promise they're going to deliver on to their constituents and then just go do that without thinking what's Fox and Friends saying about me this morning. I mean, I think one of the worst things happening with our president right now is that he is so obsessed with what's being written about him. Dude, do your job and don't care about this. And when I think about the women and men in my life generally – all the women I know are better at that. They're better at that disengagement. They're, they are more resilient. And I don't want to get into gender stereotypes in a harmful way. But I do want to say, 
I don't know that the trolling of women is worse than the trolling of men in the political arena. I think it comes in different forms and often feels more dangerous and threatening. But what they throw at you doesn't change what defensive shield you have to put up. And the women who I know have incredible defensive shields. And they have those shields and use them in ways that I think would really serve our politics. Yeah, and I think that we that's the next step, right, for when we're talking about we want more women involved in politics. And maybe that's why I feel so strongly about the way we talk about politicians. Because when you say women make more rational decisions, then the... It would be the rational decision, considering the way we talk about politicians and the state of our current politics, particularly nationally, maybe not locally, the rational decision would be to opt out, to say no. This is ridiculous. Who would subject themselves to this? Um, And maybe that is the rational decision that a lot of women are making for better or for worse. And so instead of begging people to put themselves in a place in which they're going to be talked about like a dog and, you know, get every... Pepe Twitter troll from here to Sunday threatening to rape them and all kinds of terrible things to just be like, okay, well, maybe we need to change the conversation to make it a more welcoming space for people, all kinds of different people and not just women. I mean, I know nobody wants to hear a politician stand up and say, y'all really need to be nicer to us. Like, I get that. I really get that. But y'all need to be nicer. You know, like, I really feel that. I feel like we have all these, we have like 500,000 elected positions. We have a new generation, at least pre-2016 election, that we're reporting lower and lower numbers of wanting to be involved in politics. If we don't change the way we think about public service and public servants, then I don't know if that problem is going to get better with regards to women, men, or anybody else. Because it is a duty and an obligation, and I feel that it is a sacred duty that people need to step up to. And it's rewarding. It is. Um, But we can't talk about it. Anybody who's interested in it, like they're a psychopath. I mean, I've had people. I think I I think that's what that guy said to me. That I think he said, "All politicians are psychopaths." Or you must be. I've had people say, "What's wrong with you? You ran for office. Well, why did you even do that? What's wrong with you? Are you a psychopath?" I mean, like crazy things. Why would you say that? You don't even know me. Like, what a terrible thing to say and to assume to somebody because they want to be in public service. And so I think until we change that narrative in a big way that we might still be having this women in representation problem it's really fun to be on congress and we do it sometimes and then i always feel a little bad after yeah i do too not I'll, super bad not too bad but a little bad like a little but we are definitely getting what we're paying for with congress we have got to pay our elected officials better we do if we don't especially if we don't want them to run to lobbying firms afterward like we need or to if you don't them want them all to be crazy rich because who else can afford to do it we need to fund their staffs if we want them to vote in an informed way on bills we need enough people there writing briefing memos and reading them and debating them and i loved what emily ellsworth who came and talked to beth while i was on vacation said that like if you want to be heard by your elected official except that we need to pay more people to be in the room listening. That's right. We need more people to answer the phone. If you, want, if you don't want to hear the busy signal every time you call, oh, I don't know, Mitch McConnell, then we, he needs more staff. So, you know, that's important. And if we want to prioritize these things, I hear this over, I've heard it from Bill Clinton, I've heard it over and over again from many, many, many politicians, that when they stopped living there together and they started going home every weekend and keeping their families in their home state, things changed. They need to live there. Because it's real easy to play hardball with somebody until, like, your kid's on the same t-ball team and you have to go sit next to them and listen to them. And there was a community there that when the Contract for America came through and they all started going back home, things really, really changed. Now, that's not to say that I don't think there is some hope. My favorite thing I try to remind myself all the time is I heard an interview with a senator who'd been there for, like, 40 years. I don't remember who he was. But he was, like, retiring. He was like, hey, listen, when I started, about half everybody showed up drunk. So we've come a little ways. So there's that. So I think about the fact that Congress has a lower approval rating than the president. Which, America, come on. But America. yet incumbency remains the most powerful thing. That's well, my that's favorite right. part. And this is the thing. You're so schizophrenic. That, to me, the duration of our disapproval of Congress, coupled with our relentless insistence on electing the same people, 
means those people as individuals are not the problem. It is the structure, and that is on all of us to fix, and we will not get more women in office until we fix that. And let me make that tweetable. Don't hate the player, hate the game. That's what I say over and over again. Do not hate the player, hate the game. When you say, I worked in D.C., and you get this nastiness, everybody there is terrible, and I'm like, you don't understand. Yes, I worked on Capitol Hill. Some people were jerks. Just like wherever you work, some people are jerks. But a lot of people were there for the right reasons, serving for the right reasons. And even if you didn't agree with every decision, even if every decision they make didn't make them super comfortable, which I'm sure is the case in politics, like they're good people. They're not monsters. And, you know, so stop thinking if we just get all new people, it's going to fix everything because that's most certainly not going to undo Citizens United. It's most certainly not going to change our winner-take-all electoral process. It's most certainly not going to do anything about our parties that are a hot freaking mess. So I, I think that making it all about the politicians is hugely problematic. I think the other thing to say is that in addition to greater representation of the population as a whole, and the characteristics of women that we've been talking about, we are all hungry for transformational leadership, and we will not have that until the table looks different altogether. And that means not only more women sitting there, but more women of different ages. Until the most recent election cycle, Kentucky, in our state state legislature, had zero women with school-aged children sitting there. This is the body that sets our funding mechanisms, you know, and there were zero women sitting there with school-aged children. Like, we have to get past I'm too young or I'll do this when my kids are grown or all those things that hold us back because these policies affect us in very real ways. I mean, I say this all the time. We need people who are worried about the price of milk in Congress. We need people who know what gas costs right now. We need people who are thinking about laundry and whether their son might be drafted at some point thinking about our foreign policy and I think we shy away from all of those things again because of these outsized concerns about what it's going to be like and I'll say that it's not only ideas about what it means to be a politician that affect women's decision to um, run but what you said I think is an excellent callback to the mom guilt switch which is we need to affect the ideas about what it means to be a woman before women are going to be more comfortable running for office, and particularly with regards to being a mom. I had more than one person when I knocked on their door say, how are you going to take care of your kids? Who's going to be taking care of your kids? Don't you have little kids? Like, that's not a pleasant thing to be asked. It's not, um, it's, you know, I don't have a great mom. I mean, my mom, mom, I have a mom guilt switch to turn off, but I'm not as quick with the trigger finger as Beth is. I wish I was. I wish I was. (laughs) But, you know, I think until we can, we can help women let go of these ideas of what's a good mom and what's, um, what's a, a, just like I said, like a nice girl. Generally, we have all these voices in our head that say that how you fulfill this role affects your value as a woman. And we're going to have to let go of some of that. You know, we're just going to have to. Politics is demanding. Um, politics will take you away from your family from time to time. I miss some of the things for my kids just being a part-time Paducah City Commissioner. But I do that because I am hope I'm teaching them a bigger lesson. And I'm showing them that sometimes you exercise your values in different ways. And that I have been blessed with a lot and therefore on Spider-Man, a lot is expected of me. And I want them to understand that. And I think that's valuable. I think that's a valuable lesson for my children to learn and for all children to learn, whether it come from their father or whether it come from their mother. Yeah, the reason I don't have a mom guilt problem is because I'm confident in the decisions that I'm making and the effect that they have on our kids. I'm confident in the partner that I chose to raise these kids with and the way he influences them. I'm confident in the people that I surround them with. I'm confident that their mom doing this podcast is better for them than their mom not doing it, you know, and because of what it creates in me and what it puts out, put it, puts out into the world. I am certain of these things. Now, it's, it's incumbent on me to keep checking in and to make sure that the pie chart of my life makes sense is where I'm spending my time really aligned with my priorities. Somebody asked us earlier today what success is. Um, that that's, was a vase, not a pie chart. You've got to tell them the vase story. Oh, I can tell the vase story. I love the vase story. Um, but, but, you know, so let me finish this thought and then I'll do the vase. I think that sometimes mom guilt is a way to blame your children 
for not doing things that you really never wanted to do anyway, or that you really weren't um, brave enough to do anyway. And I'm not putting that crap on my kids. You know what I mean? I'm going to own my own life, and in the process of doing that, teach them to own theirs. So That's the vase. That's tweetable. <laughs> we, we did a podcast interview earlier today for someone else's podcast, and I don't even remember how we got here. Sarah said something about rocks, and so I said, well, I tell the story. So I was at church on Sunday, and my pastor had this vase, And she put a bunch of big rocks into it all the way up to the top. And she said, is the vase full? And everyone said, yes. And then she put a bunch more little rocks in it. And then she put some sand in it. And then she put some water in it. And she said, now, a lot of professors use this to talk about time management with freshmen in college. And they'll show this. And they'll say, what was the point of that exercise? And the kids will go, oh, if you really want to do something, you can fit it in. You just squeeze it in. She's like, no, that is not the point. (laughs) Wrong. The point is that the big rocks have to go in first. And I think this does tie back to women in politics because, and this is something that I am quoting a lot lately, uh, Krista Tippett's book, Becoming Wise, has a paragraph in it that I've read over and over and over again. She says that when you hear millennials primarily talking about transparency and authenticity, those are really fragile words because they can easily sound trite, and they can easily sound unattainable. And what we need to hear in those words is a holy longing, which I love that phrase, a holy longing, to reconnect to the things that really make us human, and to make sure that the way we behave corresponds with our humanity. And I think in politics, we are not putting the big rocks in first. Our foundation on our policy discussions is not built on mutual respect for one another. It's not built on virtue. It's not even right now built on, like, information. I mean, I think there must be briefing books, like, soaked in coffee stains in these offices that I don't think people are reading them, you know? Um, I think right now everything is so reflexive and that we're just playing with the sand and the little rocks and our vase is all out of order and that that requires a dumping out. And a new set of people, much more reflective of our entire country, saying, we're going to start this over and put the big rocks in first. And I think women are uniquely equipped in a lot of ways to have that conversation. Absolutely. And I think that, I think that's 100% right. And I think that when we're deciding which rocks to put in first, I think that with politics, what's so hard is We use the word paradox. And with women in politics and politics in general, there is this paradoxical place in which it is emotional. That's something I really came to realize with this election, that there is just so much emotion, raw emotion tied up with people in politics and particularly when they look at a woman, maybe her name's Hillary Clinton, in a political row. And with that, it's just this weird space in which you have to acknowledge that. And Beth, we were talking about this earlier, sort of not been to that, to say emotions are important. And we are all exercising a lot of emotions as a culture in these political conversations, but not to let emotion rule the day, which is such a hard place to be in. I mean, it's what we try to do with pantsuit politics, and it's hard when you're sitting across from somebody that you love and respect and who loves and respects you, and I can't, I'm not, I don't have the answer for how we get there as a culture, except to just keep trying, and just to keep, I don't know, shoving in the, wait, no, we don't shove in as many rocks, that's right, no, we don't shove in as many rocks, (laughs) I'm just kidding, Um, and so, I, I mean, I think it's just, it's a hard, complicated dance, whether you're a woman in politics, or whether you're not, and, you know, the, the complexity of that and the paradox of acknowledging people's emotion with respect, trying to move us to a place where we're not so driven by emotion is hard. And I I do think women are suited to that. I do think women can walk that line. And I don't want to use the word better because I don't really want to make it about that, but in just a different way that maybe our politics is hungry for, a different approach. Because it's complicated, but it's also not at all. It's also, I mean, we're talking about everything happening in Washington, D.C. right now. Like, it's inevitable 
You said this when we talked about motherhood on the podcast a couple of episodes ago. Sarah said, we talk about motherhood today like it's the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. Like the way we view it in America is the natural order. We do the same thing with our politics. We talk about this partisan clash like it's the natural of order of things. It's not. It does not have to be this way. We can change this. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, when we talk about it as being so difficult, we ignore the fact that all of life is a paradox. You talk about things that are complicated and holding space for different perspectives and competing values. That's being a parent. That's being a friend. That's having a marriage, for Christ's sake. I mean, like, it's, that's. Hi, husbands. Every, <laughs> love, with love. We love you. Um, no, I mean, but there's, there's nothing in, you know, we, life is good and then we die. Like, we have to hold all these things together. <laughs> All the time. And show. Life is good and then we die. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Keep doing. But, you know, I, I mean, we talk, we talk about this like it is so incredibly difficult. It's not more difficult than any other human experience that we have. Mm-hmm. We have made it more difficult by locking it in with a whole lot of money and a whole lot of power. And we can take that away, too, yeah. if we decide to. The system, the system is out of whack. And, I'm like, and it's not a surprise to anybody. I'm not saying anything revolutionary when I say our political system is not functioning at its max capacity right now. Um, but like you said, it's not, it's not a static condition. And um, both individually and systematically, change can happen. Change can happen. We see it. We're capable of it. It's hard. But like we say in Pansy Politics, everything good is hard. Everything good should make you a little sweaty. So. That seems like the note to <laughs> wrap up on. I hope you guys enjoyed our first ever live show. Thank you again to Red Pepper, as well as the event sponsors, Jackalope Brewing, Bravazi, and 12th Table. We had such an amazing time. Thank you to our executive producers, my husband, Nicholas, Tracy, Leslie, and Sabrina. And as well, just don't forget, you can head over to patreon.com and get the Q&A that happened after the show, which is available to patrons only. We'll be back Tuesday with a regular episode. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.